with the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to the Sunday Space Show program. And I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. A couple of very quick announcements. Today's program is following the 60-minute format. Of course, if you're calling us in or emailing us, we'll continue the program. But do watch your clocks if you want to get in and talk to our guest, who I will introduce in a minute, and participate in today's show. Uh, Make sure you do it while we're still on air. I say that all the time, and there are always a couple of stragglers that come in. So uh, we're looking for the 60-minute program uh, for right now. We have a full week of space show planning coming up on the space show, and uh, Dallas Pinoff leads off on Tuesday with news about his cislunar business and some related kinds of things to that. Um, we have... Um, sort of an unknown Hotel Mars at the moment. That's normal. Um, on Friday, we go to the U.K. to Rafael Jorda, uh, the CEO of a really dynamic startup company over there, Open Cosmos. And the website links I put into it are there on the uh, on the newsletter, so you can start to check that out. And then uh, Sunday, we do a show with the executive director, Rob Ronsi of Calius, um uh, foundation, and then we move right on into I can't believe this the Thanksgiving, the end of November, and um, going into December. Wow, time really flies. Um, so, um, one other thing I want to talk about is that we are uh, doing our annual campaign. We started a little bit earlier because of the effect on the economy and and on spatial economy as well of the pandemic. So uh, keep in mind that all of our programs are listener-supported by people just like you listening to the show, and your support uh, does keep us going, allows us to get great guests and do the programs that, that we do and keep them all available on archives free of charge. So we uh, certainly appreciate all of you who do support us, those of you who will support us. And uh, remember, we're a nonprofit 501c3 with one giant LEAP Foundation, and you get a tax deduction if you're a federal U.S. taxpayer. The same is true if you're fortunate enough to pay taxes in California. You get a California break as well. And PayPal is the best way to support us, and there's a giant PayPal link at the top of our homepage. But if you do want to use a check, it is made payable to one giant leap foundation. You mail that to Box 95. Tiburon, California, 94920, and uh, we certainly appreciate that. We also have sponsors, and we're opening that up for 2021. 
with, and it is a true bargain because your company imprint, your slogan, whatever your message is, uh, it's going to be played for years and years. We're still having archive programs played from the beginning times back to 2001, and your ba- banner ad, that may change, but your uh, message that I read on air and your company name, that's there. So what a, what a great value to uh, continue to put your company's name or message in front of a global audience. So um, you do get the banner ad running across the home page. You can change it as often as you want. And, of course, I read out your message on the 90-minute program, and I read out your name and give you a great shout-out on the shorter version of the program, which is what we're doing today. For example, Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Moonwards, Celestis, the National Space Society, the Space Plan. These are all terrific sponsors that keep the space show going and benefit many of you who listen to it. So um, if you are a listener, uh, join us and uh, help fund us so we can go into our 20th year starting next year. And we uh, absolutely thank you very much for your support. If you have any questions about any of this, feel free to email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, our newsletter for the coming week is already published, and it's on the upper right of our homepage. So check it out. Remember, we archive everything, and those archives last forever. Uh, you, can, you can get those uh, off of our website uh, or probably a couple of other ways, too. We have a store, and many of you may be thinking of uh, stocking stuff or gifts or gifts this year. So there's a lot of items available on the Space Show store. Go check it out. Click on Pepper listening to the Space Show, and she'll take you uh, right into our store. And then, as I said, we're a nonprofit, 501c3 with one giant leap foundation. Your support, listeners just like you, keep us on the air, and we certainly do appreciate that. Um, our, we have a returning guest today, uh, Dr. Michael Schmidt. Um, He has talked with us before about personal medicine uh, and applying that to what's happening in space. So he has a new paper on this topic. It is linked on our blog. It's the first blog comment, and it's in the New Space Journal. Uh, The title of his paper, let's, um, excuse me, i got to scroll down to the right paper. Where the hell did I put your paper, Mike? Here it is. Why Personalized Medicine is the Frontier of Medicine and performance for humans in space. And as I said, you can uh, read the paper online or you can download and print it if you would like. Uh, Dr. Schmidt is among the leading um, advancement of people uh, that are really focusing in on precision medicine and performance in human spaceflight. His clinical research work is focused on multi-scale analytics derived from genomics, epi- I'm going to mess all these words up, epigenomics, transcriptomics, protomics, metabolomics, and uh, microbiomics. How many of those did I miss, Michael? Uh, This includes early involvement in the NASA twin study and work with the Weill Cornell medical team on the study's post-mission analytics. Um, His full new bio, he he gave us an updated one, is on our website, and uh, it's very impressive, and I would urge you to read it because it has a lot of details in it that are very relevant to our discussion today. But I don't want to read about our guest. I want to use all of our time to talk with him. 
I have read his article, again, Why Personalized Medicine is the Frontier of Medicine and Performance for Humans in Space. And, uh, Michael, welcome back to the Space Show. It's good to talk to you again. How are you? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, really good to be back with you. No, I'm, I'm doing well, and I uh, appreciate you having me on again today. Let's hope I do better in pronunciation as we go through the show than I, than I did on your on your bio and introduction. Uh, Michael, we've talked about personalized medicine with you and others over maybe the past five or six years. And um, so my kind of opening question is I'm going to assume that the bulk of our listeners know what it is because they listen to a lot of space show programming. I want to know why I'm not seeing it being used by doctors in my health care or the health care of my friends, for example, or, or family members. And I'm not talking about country doctors. I'm talking about doctors, you know, that have come from UCSF, from Harvard, from Stanford, from UCLA. You know, great doctors, if you look up their resumes and their information, great fellowships, great everything. I mean, you know, on the first line of everything. And if I ask them, why aren't you using personalized medicine, you know, there's a big blank face in their their face. So why, why is it only for astronauts? and not coming into the population? So I think that's a fair question, David, and one of the things that, that I'd like to do in this conversation today is really bridge from spaceflight medicine to human performance in general and then into our regular clinical medicine, which is what you're asking about, because one of the things we always want to do is take what we've learned from Earth-based medicine and, and apply what we can to space, and then vice versa. You know what we learn from spaceflight medicine. How do we apply that to Earth-based medicine? And so, one of the reasons I would say that we're not implementing it widespread, both on Earth and in space, is that we are we have a systems evolution challenge, right? So all of these systems uh, are kind of monolithic in a certain way, right? They they uh, have a big culture to them. The training of doctors is its own culture, and it's the same in Earth-based medicine as it is in spaceflight-based medicine. And so it's part of a culture of training and a culture of practice, but then it's also, you know, about the financial rewards in Earth-based medicine and the cost. So it, at the present time, costs more money to do it, uh, but you could argue that spaceflight would be the perfect environment in which to do that. So, for example, on Earth, we're using it in cancer diagnosis right now. So that's probably where the ideal model for personalized medicine or precision medicine really took root in Earth-based medicine was in oncology and cancer screening and cancer care and cancer diagnosis and then tailoring the treatment to a given individual based on their particular genotype, right, what is their own gene structure that they inherited from their parents, but also even genotyping the tumor so they know what the tumor is responsive to. So uh, one of the things that we do in uh, in addition to our spaceflight work is we work with humans in extreme operating environments. So that ranges from uh, military special forces to Olympic athletes uh, to NFL football, NBA basketball, MLB baseball, hockey, uh, etc. And uh, I'll use one of our examples where we apply precision medicine like this regularly was with the Golden State Warriors during their uh, run-up to setting the NBA record for wins in a season. That was the 
the season record that the Chicago Bulls under Michael Jordan um, once held. And uh, so we did regular screening of the athletes on a quarterly basis and then looked at all the specific molecular patterns, identified what the individual needs were from those patterns, and then uh, addressed each athlete's needs personally. So there are some general applications, right? You can say certain patterns are very common, but then we tailor them to those individual athletes. And so one of the things that that we generally find is that there is an improvement in health, an improvement in performance, and improvement in recovery, and then a, a improvement in longevity within a season or within even a career now we're finding. So what we're really trying to do is improve how all of their molecular networks function. So we want them to function more efficiently on any given day, but certainly over the course of a season or a mission or an operation. And so we've tested this model actually quite heavily in these uh, a range of extreme operating environments. And so we really think it's a matter of time only until it becomes a standard of care in uh, spaceflight medicine and uh, a question of how it will trajectory in earth-based medicine probably the question of money and uh, and the cost of doing some of these analyses but uh, I think we we're making tremendous progress and it's just going to take more time uh, so I'll use I'll use one example and maybe it'll illustrate a little bit so and maybe I'll direct it to the whole listening audience and say, imagine if you're an astronaut on a mission to Mars, and this is going to be a 500-day mission, and there's six astronauts, and you individually are one of them, and what we want to do is find out how to protect your brain and cognitive function on the way to Mars. And what we will find is that each one of you will have a different molecular pattern, uh, a different pattern with regard to DNA repair enzymes, which you need, uh, and a different pattern with regard to the neurotrophins, right? These are the molecules that help repair the brain. And so one in particular that we already know that has an effect on things like dementia and Alzheimer's on Earth, it's called APOE4. So out of the six, let's say, astronauts that we would pick for that mission, they will all probably have a different APOE4 genotype, it's called, so their particular gene profile that they inherited from their parents uh, will be different from one another. And we would take a different approach to each one of those with regard to the preparation, uh, the pre-mission training, the in-mission countermeasures, and things of that nature. And so that's only one genotype. So now imagine we've got hundreds and actually, in all honesty, thousands of those different molecular fingerprints that we would then tailor our solution to the individual astronaut and that individual's unique molecular profile. And so when we look at it from that vantage point, we actually ask the question, why wouldn't you tailor it to the individual astronaut? So I'll, I'll pause there, David, and uh, see what your thoughts are. Well, first of all, how do I, I – I, I'm not hearing you correctly, so how do you write ABOE for what are you actually saying or what are the letters? Oh, sure. A is an Alpha, P is in Peter, uh, O is in Orion, E is in Echo, and then the number four. Okay. So APO, E4, 
Okay. Um, it's one of the most studied genes in neuroscience research and in cognitive function and Alzheimer's research and so forth. So to put that in perspective, uh, in some of the NASA twins work that we have been working on for some time now, uh, Scott Kelly had eight of ten cognitive measures, right? So these are a measure of uh, mental function, uh, were decreased over the course of the mission, and they remained decreased up to six months after the mission. And, you know, that's a reflection on how difficult the space flight environment really is. Uh, but one of the things that you would look at is the APOE4 genotype to see if that created any further risk. Or another gene is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. Uh, we would look at that genotype and then so on and so on. And so from gathering information about those genes as one example, then we could develop a tailored program for an astronaut so that we could eventually offer them greater protection, improvement in repair, and uh, hopefully greater functioning on a long mission like that. Um, when you talk about spaceflight and professional athletes, you have people fully engaged in their health care. When you talk about the general public, public, I don't know what percentage of the public is fully engaged in their health care, but uh, I guess if you were taking that poll in Walmart, it wouldn't be very much. So um, how important is the person to be fully engaged in their health care and, and eating right and, and, and getting at least some exercise and, and doing things to take care of themselves, um, maybe not on the level of an athlete or on the, the level of an astronaut, but certainly on a higher level than probably what most of us do in our daily lives. And we're, if we're not fully engaged, is that a detriment to uh, precision medicine? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, it is a detriment because the individual does have to be engaged, and I'll, I'll use two examples of this that would actually be relevant to an astronaut as well. So, you know, we don't only measure genes. We measure the small molecules called metabolites, um, but everybody's gone into their doctor and had insulin and glucose and hemoglobin A1C measured on themselves. It's part of a routine physical, typically. And so let's imagine that, uh, and again, I'll bridge from the astronaut population to, to an Earth-based population. Let's imagine your insulin level was 25 and your glucose was 150. That would be a problem for your cardiovascular system, your brain function, your musculoskeletal system, etc. So it has widespread effects. That would be one of those markers, though, where you could train to it and say, we need to do everything possible to get, let's say, your insulin down to 10. And once you have that marker, then you can take the specific steps to change that. So, for example, one thing that lowers insulin is fasting. Another thing that lowers it is exercise. Another thing that will lower it um, is low-carbohydrate diets, for example. So that that would be tailored uh, to that individual. So one of the things that I can I'll, I'll use as an example, but we can't quite 
speak about it yet, but it was a finding we made in the NASA twin study, and we have a paper coming out soon on that, and maybe we'll come back and talk about those specific findings, David. But uh, we found an interesting marker in the NASA twin study after one year in space, and it happens to come from the gut microbiome. And it has some pretty significant implications, And uh, but one solution among many that, we've, that we'll, we have written about in this paper would be particular types of prebiotics that would modify the types of bacteria that make this compound. And so there, your solution, your countermeasure for that individual would be increase in dietary fiber, but of a very particular kind of fiber, so you target the exact kind of microbes in the gut that make this compound. Now, another person may not have that elevation, and this is why I say the personalized medicine or the precision medicine can be so helpful both on Earth and in space because the other individual, the hypothetical other individual with a different gut microbial population may need a different dietary intervention than the one that I'm talking about that's related to this specific finding that that we made on the twin study. So... They, it becomes a very rational approach that we can look at these uh, many, many measures in their blood and urine chemistry and then develop a very tailored approach to that individual, much of which includes diet and nutrition and lifestyle and physical activity and other kinds of training methods. They don't by any means uh, rely upon drugs, although they sometimes do require drugs. Um, commercial people, com- commercial markets want to go to Mars, and um, I, any of the companies, well, human spaceflight still seems pretty far away for the private sector, but uh, Musk has s- some relatively soon approaching Mars plans, which would be with the private sector. Um, what do you do? And, and by the way, I, he is using NASA astronauts on these, you know, flights to the space station. But that may not be the same for going to Mars. What do you? Are you seeing any interest with the, with the private sector, with the commercial space companies, to um, Im- implement this kind of health care for what may end up being private astronauts or private spaceflight participants? I would say the answer to that is yes. There's an increasing interest, and so one of the one of the primary drivers, as you know, in that sector, both both NASA and the and the commercial sector, is getting their spacecraft fl- flying and uh, managing all the engineering complexities uh-huh. of that, and and that's uh, that's their lead objective. And then, of course, the astronaut safety is their second most important. And I would say that astronaut performance, let's say, optimizing that performance would be a later stage interest than that, right? They want to make sure everybody's safe, everybody comes back safe. But we look at health, safety, and performance as all being linked, right? So if you can sustain a long mission uh and come back relatively healthy, that's one thing. If you can perform uh, an EVA, right, an extravehicular activity, and do that safely, that's 
that's a mission critical element for for any operation. And, and I'll use an example of where personalized medicine would come in there. Uh, so let's have your audience again imagine that they're uh, about to do an EVA, and their doctor has prescribed uh, Ambien because they're having trouble sleeping. During the day-night cycles, let's say on the space station or on a mission to Mars, they're still having day-night cycle difficulty sleeping, so they take Ambien. And uh, and Ambien has some carryover effects, right? Uh, yeah, they're horrible. Yep, <laughs> I've yep. taken it before. I won't it, take it again. Yeah, and anyone who's taken it feels those carryover effects, but astronauts do use it. Now, here's what's interesting. Let's imagine that that astronaut developed an infection. And so the doctor said, well, you're going to need clarithromycin. So let's say the aerospace physician makes that recommendation as well. And so now the astronaut is taking Ambien and clarithromycin. Well, in our personalized medicine paradigm, we know that clarithromycin slows down the enzyme in the liver that metabolizes Ambien. So what it does is it creates an effect where Ambien remains longer in the bloodstream and its effect of drowsiness and sleepiness and sluggishness and slow reaction times and so forth. It prolongs all of that. So now imagine you're going into an EVA, but you're, you have prolonged the effects of Ambien by taking the antibiotic with it. In the regular practice of medicine, they wouldn't give any real attention to that. Right? They would right. say, well, you need to be treated for this, and I'm giving you this drug. In the, in the precision medicine and personalized medicine sphere, we would say that reaction is predictable and repeatable, and we would not give that particular antibiotic with the Ambien, or at least we would change either the drug or the mission conditions and the mission parameters, but we would be aware that it could negatively impact the mission by using these two drugs together. And that is another part of the personalized medicine paradigm that we would apply in space. And honestly, if you're a truck driver and driving a long-haul truck across the United States, you would want your doctor to do the same thing. So we're not typically doing that in uh, Earth-based medicine, and we are not yet doing that in aerospace medicine. Um, and this is why we have been working hard over many years to try and advance personalized medicine in spaceflight and on Earth, really, so that we can take care of these kinds of problems with repeatability and precision. You know, the same thing would apply, let's say, to our some of our athletes or, or military special forces. If they were going on a mission and they took Ambien and... Uh, they were also given clarithromycin. That same effect would apply. So you'd have mission, mission uh, impairment potentially with that one individual, which could impair the operation depending on their role, right? So, so this is where we're trying to become more and more precise with everything we do. So I think everybody in the audience has probably taken. Are you there? Hello. Hello. I lost. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, I, I lost yeah, you. I cut out. For, I cut out for just a minute. Yeah. Um, Taking the wrong drugs, Michael. What can yeah. we, <laughs> we had a uh, we had an interruption here. Uh, yeah. So everybody has probably taken drugs like uh, Tylenol, uh, acetaminophen. Right. 
imagine if you're in a space flight environment or in a working environment and uh, you don't have enough of particular amino acids in your bloodstream, the, the Tylenol becomes much more toxic and much more threatening to the liver. Another example is the drug codeine, which probably everybody uh, in your audience has taken. So we typically measure the genes that metabolize drugs like codeine. So if you are a slow metabolizer, you only convert about 10% of the codeine into morphine. And so that's actually why codeine works. It converts to morphine. So you only convert about 10% if you're a slow metabolizer, and therefore it really doesn't work. Now, if you're an ultra-rapid metabolizer of codeine into morphine, you convert about 50%. So you could even get morphine overdose symptoms from taking codeine if you have that particular genotype or that particular gene profile. So we now know, and even the FDA says, don't take codeine if you're a poor metabolizer because it doesn't work, and do not take codeine if you're an ultra-rapid metabolizer because it's dangerous. You could produce more morphine. And, of course, morphine symptoms are respiratory suppression, uh, sweating, nausea, chills, vomiting in some cases, spasms in the larynx, right, in the voice box, and uh you know, those are some serious symptoms, especially in certain working environments. And so that, again, would be an example where, you know, we could do a simple gene test and we could know that uh, within a very short period of time, and then we would immediately take codeine off of the list of certain individuals. So I could go to my doctor and ask for this simple gene test and then determine whether I should ever be given morphine or codeine. Codeine, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's available today. What's the gene test? Well, so often they don't do individual gene tests for uh-huh. drug. Uh, it's called pharmacogenomics. They will often do a panel, and then that gives you your whole profile of a number of different genes that metabolize medication. So, for example, if someone is going to be given a psychiatric drug for depression, let's let's say, They could get this gene panel, this pharmacogenomic panel, and then you would have a readout that would be cross-referenced with the drug list and simply say, this is a, this is an optimum one, this is a poor choice because of the interactions and because of your particular genotype. And so, uh, this is where the precision part and why you know, medicine has started to use the term precision medicine along with personalized medicine because it's personalized to you, but its precision is enormously elevated by running these very specific tests that take a lot of the guesswork out of things like prescribing um, and even dietary and nutritional recommendations. It's just a way to to very seriously refine our approach of medicine uh, and and our approach uh, of performance. So if I want my doctor or a doctor to do this on me, what do I ask for? Uh, you'd want a personal pharmacogenomic profile. And they'd know what that is? Um, or they'd look it up? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, there's some places that work very hard at this. So, for example, Va- Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, uh, Duke University, etc. Uh, Johns Hopkins. There's places that are that are very focused on this, and they they do this routinely. There are other places that that don't do it, and many clinics, and especially you know smaller communities, probably don't do it at all, and wouldn't really know how to order it uh, and how to meet that need. And so that's to go back to our early part of the conversation, David. That's why it's a training gap. So we started a program at George Washington University School of Medicine. Um, that started to train doctors in this this kind of approach. You know, it was an, it was a uh, not a required course. It was an elective degree program, but uh, that's where you can get some of this kind of training is in, in special programs. But you have to opt into those programs. It's not a routine part of medical training yet. I have a, a question from a, a listener. So Todd is in San Diego, and he says in terms of both personal and precision, and again, let's stay focused, I guess, on spaceflight personnel or astronauts. What are the differences that might be specific to uh, to sex, to culture, race, those kinds of issues? I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that we're all pretty different if you're going to get down to the fine nitty-gritty of fine-tuning us. Yeah, so that, that's a fair question, and that gives us a chance to talk a little bit about the, the context. So there are some very unique and distinct differences between ethnic groups. Uh, for example, drug metabolizing enzymes between Asian people and Caucasian people. Certain uh, drug metabolizing enzymes can be quite different in, in their percentage that are abnormal. Uh, blacks and Caucasians for other types of, of uh, enzymes in the body, they can be quite different. There's been a lot of study on this question over the years, and one of the things we've come to believe about it is that while it's important to understand the ethnic and sex and other differences when we talk about populations so that we can understand, for example, how common something is in let's say, white people versus black people. Uh, when you get down to the individual, you still end up needing to understand their individual, let's say, genotype or their particular blood chemistry in order to make the right decisions. So while all of the data that we're getting in around different ethnic, group, ethnic groups and sex, geographic regions and so forth, while that's been enormously helpful to see patterns and how common certain types of things are, it helps us to know what to look for. Uh, in the end, we still have to know in that individual what is their particular unique molecular profile so that we can make the right decisions that are optimum for that particular individual. And so let's say that we had a white male, a black male, and a white female and an Asian male on a mission to Mars. So if we looked in general at the literature about common genetic variants in those different groups, that would be informative. It would tell us percentages and things like that. But it still wouldn't tell us with this individual going on this mission, do they have that variant or not? 
And that's what's kind of nice about where we are now with regard to precision medicine is we have enough molecular analytical know-how to be able to ask many, not not all, but many and most of those kinds of questions of a particular individual and then develop a tailored individual program for them going on a mission. Uh, John is in Phoenix, Arizona with an email question for you. And he says, um, we already know that NASA is doing this to some extent. Does any other space agency representing a government like Russia, ESA, China, Japan, India, anyone else doing any of this, or would they look to NASA uh, if their astronauts were going to go up on the space station, for example? So I would say the, the degree to which NASA or or other organizations uh, is doing it, they're certainly now starting to research it with greater greater frequency, greater vigor. They're starting to fund these kinds of initiatives uh, increasingly more. And then it, NASA is, is adopting it uh, in pieces, right? So uh-huh. the one thing I, I should say is that you know, doctors have always, to a degree, done a kind of personal medicine, right? They've always tried to tailor it to that person, that patient, whatever, who's in front of them. You know, what we're talking about is a much more complex and in-depth form of molecular profiling that allows us to not just tailor to disease needs, but to really tailor it to their individual metabolism so it can influence performance uh, health and safety, not just targeting toward disease or specific symptoms. So to address that question a little bit more thoroughly, uh, there's a growing interest in, in all of the space agencies in this, and uh, but it's a somewhat of a slow adoption curve like it has been in, uh, in Earth-based medicine. And again, it partly has to do with training and experience and resources and and then a philosophy. And I would say in space medicine, one of the things we've uh, where we're hoping to move more quickly nowadays is with the multi-scale omics that you spoke about early when we when you were introducing me, David. So now that we can measure more of these things, we can get our information back from space more quickly. Uh, so. In the past, we would have to do what's called targeted analysis. So we might say, well, on this mission, we're going to measure these 50 things, and we're going to see how that responds in space. And then when we get that information back, perhaps next time we will treat or address those things, but we might have to duplicate it and duplicate it a couple times until we're comfortable saying, yeah, that's a pattern we should address. Um, what the multi-scale omics are doing, like we did in the twin study, that's genomics, epigenomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and all those long omics words, uh, we can measure thousands upon thousands of molecules at a single time on a single mission, and it starts to show us patterns that might take us years to have developed or understood in the past. So it gives us a sense of targets of opportunity for countermeasures or treatments more quickly or sooner than the way we had to do it in the past, and that's partly a technological evolution. So to kind of get back to the to the question, 
Uh, I think we're going to accelerate this application now of precision medicine uh, in space now that we've been able to capture much, much broader molecular patterns in, in the astronauts that we do have in space. And that's what's been exciting about these different agencies now um, moving in this direction. You have a caller on hold that I'll get to in just a second. But uh, if I had the typical JSC flight surgeon who deals with the astronauts on the show, and I said, are, are you applying precision uh you know, personal medicine standards to your flight crews, to the people, you know, that are going up on the station and that you attend to, what would my answer be? Well, I, I work with all those guys, and I and I have an enormous amount of respect for them. And, but, uh, here comes I, a but, right? <laughs> no, I, I, think that I, I think they would say that's something that we're very interested in, and we need more data, we need more training, uh, so, for example, I think the last time I was on, David, we talked about our our paper, uh, uh, precision or pharmacogenomics in spaceflight: uh, colon a foundation of precision medicine and astronauts. That's an area where, let's say, the space medicine physicians at NASA, they really are trying to understand how do we add precision to the use of pharmaceuticals in space, and that chapter was part of a textbook on pharmaceuticals and spaceflight. And so I think the area of application where it's gotten the most interest in, let's say, in the NASA office would be in the application of pharmacogenomics. How do we prescribe drugs more safely based on understanding the genome profile of the individual astronaut, and how can we uh, use the drugs that would be most effective in that particular astronaut? So I think that's the that's the fastest uptake uh, in the astronaut office. There's also been uh, quite a lot of interest, and it's kind of uh, unusual that it's been generating this much interest, and that's the gut microbiome. Uh, across the spaceflight medicine community, there's been a lot of interest in that. Uh, that one's even more complex than pharmacogenomics applied, but there has been a tremendous amount of interest and the general approach to the microbiome is going to be dietary modifications. And so that's a very low-risk kind of intervention with a potential high-reward scenario. Uh, you know, when you identify the right foodstuffs, that will favorably modify the gut microbes. So I'll, I'll give one example of that. So the gut barrier in space is very vulnerable because of the, the radiation. It's vulnerable on Earth. Uh, when certain types of microbes are depleted, they make less of a compound called butyrate. It's a short fat, uh, small fatty acid. That helps maintain the barrier integrity of the colon so things don't leak across, the colon contents don't leak across. Um, we know already that things like inulin and resistant starch uh, to dietary components do improve the population of butyrate producers. So that would be one example uh, that I think the astronaut office uh, has growing interest in is to modify the diet so that it optimizes for these beneficial microbes in the gut going into space and then maintaining that while they're in space. Um, 
let's see what who your guest is. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program today. Who are you and where are you, please? Uh, this is Marshall uh, in Oklahoma. Okay. How are you doing? Uh, and uh, my main question is, and I kind of think I know what the answer is, uh, what about uh, doing these type of techniques for allergies? And uh, I kind of think the uh, NASA astronauts are probably uh, pretty pretty much no allergies allowed type group. Yeah, so that's a, that's a very fair question. So these kinds of molecular analytics, I'll call them, uh, they, they are very good at detecting the kinds of signals, right, the kind of molecular changes that drive the system around allergies. So allergies involve a whole bunch of different molecular cascades, but using these kind of molecular profiles, you can detect these kinds of systems, right? Things like histamine that we always hear about in, in mm-hmm. commercials or the complement system. It's a set of molecular uh, or antibodies, right, to certain components. We can measure those with, with very good precision. So, um, yeah, it absolutely can. And then we can measure uh, measures of permeability of the gut. So I just talked about... Uh, how the gut can become leaky or injured. Uh, radiation can do that. Uh, it can happen for other reasons on Earth. And some gut contents can leak across the gut barrier that normally wouldn't. And the immune system says, hey, that's a that's an unusual protein. I better tag that thing and, and remove it. And so now you've got the immune system attacking proteins from the diet uh, that are really aren't dangerous proteins, but they leak across <laughs> in a larger state than they normally would if, if the if the gut barrier had been intact. And so these are kind of mechanical measures that we can test. Also, so a, a protein called zonulin, for example, when it leaks into the bloodstream, you know that the the gut barrier has been damaged, and uh, now we know we have to go repair that. And that again can be a food and nutritional countermeasure to repair that gut barrier. So, yeah, so that's a fair question. And all of these things that we're talking about, again, they have applications uh, on Earth and in space. It's just that the stressors are, are quite a bit different. Yeah. I was, earlier you were talking about professional athletes, and it's kind of like, okay, some of these guys have allergies, probably minor allergies, but... Uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, how do you get peak performance out of them during game time uh, when they just uh, flew into L.A. and uh, the cedar pollen has just gone off the charts? You know, it's kind of like, for me, it's kind of like, okay, uh, I go into a corner and basically get weepy-eyed and sneeze a lot. Well, you can't do that in a professional basketball game or baseball game, right? Yeah. Yep, and then if you give them diphenhydramine, they get sleepy, right? Right. So, and, 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 and so, yeah, we deal with that, uh, especially in Olympic athletes or special forces where they, you know, literally overnight go from one extreme environment to another completely different environment. And how do we optimize that? Uh, I was uh, used to be the chief scientist for the Corvette Racing Driver Science Program, and so in the Le Mans race, they have to drive for 24 hours. Oh, and yes, so, there's a, there's and the a good case. And drivers switch off every 90 minutes, so there's three drivers to a car. 
But, uh, you know, we have to keep them in those conditions functioning optimally. But then in the middle of the night, they have to sleep at least a little bit. So how do we get them to sleep for four hours and not be groggy when they awaken and have to start driving in the dark again at 200 miles an hour? And, and that's why some of these extreme environments that I've been describing are helpful for us to get a better understanding of how to apply precision medicine in the space flight environment uh, because we find out very quickly in these earth-based environments if it's if the athlete or the individual is responding uh, well or poorly, right? If they're if they're improving their performance or if there's a decrement in performance, because they'll notice a five percent decrement in performance or or improvement, whereas the person sitting on the couch won't notice that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we've learned a lot from from those types of environments. Last question, uh, gee, due to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, gee, a lot of doctors just aren't seeing patients anymore. Uh, is there any uh, uh, of that problem uh, at NASA? Yeah, NASA kind of falls into a special category. Uh, you know, they are they are definitely getting getting care, and, and missions are being planned, and uh, you know they're taking all of the usual precautions. But you know, you do you do raise a good point about what happens when. When people don't get care, and uh, you know, when when you know when the person's generally healthy, that's that's a non-issue, right? When they're healthy, they eat well and they're and they stay fit. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you one example of how some of this can be overcome as well. Uh, so Brian Crucian, who you may have had on the show, I don't know uh, David, but he's uh, is the immunology lead at NASA Johnson Space Center in the Human Research Program, and and. Uh, Brian and I have worked on some things together in the past, and Brian and his group did a study on the space station, which I wasn't um, a part of in this case, but it was very interesting. They were looking at the immune response to viral re-expression, and there's a range of viruses that re-express in the spaceflight environment, and that can be real problematic, right? You've probably heard about shingles on the space station and things like that, and that's a viral re-expression problem. So they wanted to find out if physical activity influenced the immune system to such an extent that it reduced the rate of viral re-expression. And so they did standard fitness tests, including, you know, number of pull-ups you can do and number of push-ups you can do. And so the person, the, the group in the low pull-up, low push-up group uh, had significantly more viral re-expression than those in the top one-fourth, right, the top quartile. In other words, oh. the ones who could do more push-ups and more pull-ups in a one- or two-minute period of time had less viral re-expression. Now, that's a, that's a phenomenal finding, uh, and that gets into personalized fitness again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so here's another example kind of going back to our brain, maintaining the brain's integrity on the way to a mission to Mars. So we've been looking at something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's the it's an activity-driven neurotrophin, meaning it helps the neurons grow and rebuild and repair themselves. It helps brain cells thrive. And uh, we've been looking at Antarctica as a test environment, and, and one of our colleagues did a study down there, and over 14 months, the levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor 
went down. So that's an example of an analog for space where the particular neurotrophin was lower, and so that tells us a little bit about what might happen in space. Now, we're actually looking at the BDNF values in in the twin study as we speak. We'll publish that soon. Um, but the radiation exposure is really you know, problematic for the brain on the way to space. So how do we protect that? Well, in one animal study where they looked at brain-derived neurotrophic factor during radiation exposure, the rats that they had running on a treadmill and very actively running on a treadmill had significantly better expression of brain-derived neurotrophic factor than did the rats who were just sedentary. So that, again, shows us that uh, there's some countermeasures that are really robust for the application in space, and you know there's there are differences in fitness of astronauts, as I just alluded to with the, the push-up and the pull-up study. Uh, so if we're talking about protecting the, the brain, to get to my point, we would want to make sure that we had sufficient physical activity of the right kind, the right duration, and the right intensity to be able to maintain those brain-derived neurotrophic factors as active and as high as possible on those kinds of missions. And uh, that, again, that can be generalized, but it's ideal if it's personalized. Thank you for the uh, shingles advice. Uh, gee, it, uh, it explains why I keep getting it over and over again. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, hear thank that. you very so, much. So thank uh, you for the call. I've had enough fun for today. Thank yep. you, Marshall. Bye. Um, listeners, uh, the toll-free line, if you would like to use it, 866-687-7223. Carla is in Reno, Nevada, and said, wouldn't um, the personalized and precision medical kits being taken on board, say, a space flight to Mars, be far more extensive, need far more space in the cabin, and be far more complex if you're going to have to plan for the specifics for each person on the crew rather than, say, the general pharma kit that comes up uh, from NASA on the space station, which is for everybody. Would this significantly raise the cost of a mission, or would the better performance actually lower the cost of a mission? Well, that's a very sophisticated question, yes, and it's one that we tried to address in our chapter, Pharmacogenomics in Spaceflight, and we addressed it only to a limited extent. But it is something that, that NASA and the other space programs do have to work out. In other words, does it increase or, or decrease the load? So, you know, for example, if we, if we just provided acetaminophen for everybody versus well, three of them can't use acetaminophen because of their genetics, so we're going to switch over to endomethacin, ibuprofen, etc. You know, that may be just swapping, you know, one set of of pills or one set of drugs for another another set of drugs. Uh, now, where that could become problematic is, of course, is if you run out of of something. So we do a lot of remote and wilderness medicine as well, and uh, one of my colleagues from National Geographic uh, during the COVID lockdown they were out in a ship on South America they were heading around trying to dock and they couldn't dock in Santiago 
they went around the tip of South America. They tried to dock in Montevideo, Uruguay, Argentina, uh, the Falkland Islands. No one would take them. And uh, they started running out of medication on the ship. They were out there for 30 days where no one would take them in. And so they had to uh, actually call to England, have someone fly a plane down with seizure medication. Uh, so this this is a this is a realistic challenge. You know, what are the right meds? Uh, how many of them do we need of a particular kind? And if we are tailoring it, how does that uh, affect the mission formulary? So to be honest, that still has to be worked out. Uh, then to the other side of the question, but if we do that, are we going to have fewer drug interactions, fewer adverse drug reactions, uh, a gain in performance because we used the medication that was optimum for a particular astronaut? And I think we, we definitely have to look at all of those things as potential gains if we do tailor it. Um, so I think those two questions are related, but yes, we do have to. Uh, and then the other thing we have to look at is the stability of these drugs. We don't know how stable they are on the way to Mars because uh, we haven't flown that long or that far before. And uh, we have some radiation stability tests with drugs. Um, but now with all drugs, you know, we know some are sense more sensitive to light, heat, and things like that on Earth. But all of that has to be optimized as well for a mission to Mars. So that's a terrific question. Thank you. And uh, I would say that the details do have to be worked out so that we can refine that. Uh, Alan is in Dallas, and he has an email and said, a space tourist wants to do a two-week orbital space hotel flight or maybe a two- or three three-week trip someday to some kind of a lunar resort, does that space tourist or the operator have to care about any of what you're talking about? So that's a question we've been wrestling at at the regulatory level for quite a while. I'm a couple of standard setting committees for uh, commercial space flight, and that's exactly the kind of question that we wrestle with all the time. Now, if I, if I speak about the status of things today for the providers, uh, for the uh, FAA, for example, they're basically saying the individual takes their own risk and the flight provider, you know, they have to do things safely and then they have to make a proper disclosure of those risks and then the individual who is flying takes on those risks. In other words, signs a waiver. Now, legally, you know, the lawyers from different states and jurisdictions and so forth have not really had any cases to file to sort of drive the case law on this. So it's a bit of an unknown how that's all going to work out. But the way it's being set up is like if you're going to Everest. If you're going to go to Everest, you hope you have a tour guide that's made all the right disclosures, but you take on the risk. So then the question is, uh, to the second part, so who then is responsible for the medical care? And it's it's going to fall to the individual, uh, at least on the shorter flights and things like suborbital, uh, they're really not going to stop anyone from flying except for a small category of people, right? People with contagious diseases, people with psychiatric conditions that are 
socially contagious, so to speak, you know, pregnant women and so forth. But it's not a not an extensive list. So, but what the case that we're trying to make is that if if you're an individual going on such an expensive and in some cases, you know, significant risk, then having very very good medical care. Uh, and I would add personalized or precision medical care would be critical. So, for example, we know that people who uh, are have higher body fat, they are more heat intolerant. Uh, we know people who are have higher body fat, body fat are uh, more subject to dehydration. Well, these are two things that could happen in a spacesuit, right? And so that would just be an example of one simple thing where we would say, if you're going to go on one of those missions uh, and you're going to be on the moon for three weeks, you know, if you have a body fat percentage of 30%, you you have certain susceptibilities, but if you get that down to 20%, a lot of those susceptibilities change. And there's a, there's a long list of things uh, like that that we would try to address in that kind of a scenario. And things like blood clotting, uh, how platelets stick together, uh, vascular perfusion, how the blood vessels dilate and whether they dilate sufficiently to give you blood flow when you're exerting yourself under difficult conditions. We'd want to know some of those things and then we would optimize for that individual going into that environment. So from our vantage point, there's a lot of actionable Physiology to address for a tourist going into those environments, and uh, we know that we, we know for certain that they have impact, and so that'll just make for a safer mission and a more enjoyable mission. Uh, so, the, the the space tourists should um, be concerned about this. Look into this. I'm sure whatever his doctor is going to send him won't have anything to do with this. So. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I think the individual space tourist would would want to look into it because very likely, you know, the person who gives them their certification to fly, or let's say that clears them on their physical and says yes, you're good to fly, isn't really looking at all of those measures that would help optimize that person in that very harsh environment, and that's if, if I were going on a mission like that. I would absolutely want to do that because we know these things uh, from all of the military and, and elite athlete work. We, we know that these differences in tolerances to different difficult environments can be modified by very specific means. Uh, uh, Helen is in Seattle and says, since all of this, I take it, is still relatively new, do you have any kind of anticipated plausible or realistic timeline when it might become more or less normal or routine? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's a little bit of guesswork in that question, uh, but I will say that once we really started pushing hard on doing multi-scale omics in spaceflight, and this was, you know, the late 2000s, 2010, so 2005, let's say, um, it took about till 2014 for the twin study to come on board. So that was really the first study where we finally got the full measure of multi-scale omics uh, for the one-year in space mission. So let's say that was uh, 
10 years. Um, you know, we've been pushing this. And when it happened, it happened uh, relatively quickly, finally, and then it, it went into motion, and now we're looking at doing more of these. I think aspects of precision medicine are going to come on quickly like that uh, because there's certain things that, you know, the case we're making is that you don't want to miss these things. For example, uh, we have pretty good evidence now from uh, our work with athletes, football players, the NFL, uh, military, infantry, and so forth, that if your inflammatory markers are higher so we call them the baseline inflammatory markers. If they're higher at the time of a given insult, so this is in this case brain injury, that your likelihood of a poor outcome goes up. And so we would want to make sure that going into a mission like that, that your things like, I'll just rattle off a couple of names, C-reactive protein, which is elevated in things like obesity actually, C-reactive protein, IL-6, IL-1-beta, TNF-alpha, things like that. Those are called cytokines. They're the kind of things that your immune system produces when you have an infection. But if someone is just in a chronic state of inflammation, those are elevated already. So when you go into an extreme environment with elevated cytokines to start, elevated inflammatory markers to start, your risk of having an unfavorable outcome when exposed to a harsher environment increases. So these are things we don't have to wait 30 years to study. We can address those today and make sure that our personalized medicine addresses those before someone goes into space, and that would that would be a professional astronaut or a space tourist in my view. Where do you um, see this uh, this field for spaceflight in five years, and where do you see it for the general population in five years? Are we still going to have the big gap that you're talking about? Well, the nice thing answering and uh, or let's say acting in favor of doing it much more quickly is the cost of all of these kinds of analyses are are dropping really dramatically. And so I think that's what is going to bring it in into the mainstream within the next five years. The increased usage, so like in Earth-based medicine, so once the cost goes down, there's going to be more usage uh, among the public and the doctors, and that will further drive the cost down. And so, you know, right now, for example, for when we do uh, research with metabolomics, so let's say we measure 2,000 different molecules, uh, we can do that now for about $150. Now, if you go to, you know, Quest or Mayo Medical Labs or something, it's not that cheap commercially at that point. But from a research status right now, we can actually get those done for uh, just a couple of hundred dollars. So we've already driven that down so dramatically. Uh, and so as we do more research using these methods, it's going to inform us more about the value of those measurements for just standard medical care on Earth and and in space. I would say the easier place to adopt it is in space. If you're already spending a lot of money on an astronaut or if you're a space tourist on a very expensive trip, uh, it's very easy to spend a little bit extra and get a very sophisticated molecular profiling done so that you can 
optimize to something that that's that uh, vigorous in exposure. Uh, listener, Phil is in Tucson, and, and listener, there's still time if you would like to use the phone and call us rather than just sending email. Uh, let me give you out the number again, one 867 7223 So Phil is in Tucson, and uh, he says, um, it seems to me that uh, if you're going to want this kind of information, the individual or the end user wants this kind of information, he should be able to go to a lab that can do it, Quest or one of the others that you've talked about, and if he wants to pay the price, he should be able to get it. Do you think there's a chance that this will be available without needing a doctor's prescription? Yeah, there are some uh, there are some companies coming online that are offering that sort of thing uh, already, and uh, in a in a in a limited form. I think the 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 trick is you need someone to generally interpret it all, and then make recommendations off of that interpretation. But there, you know, there are increasing numbers of doctors that will do that. Uh, but I think you're talking about, if I understood correctly, can a can a person from the public just go order their own test and have those results available and in their hands. And that likelihood is increasing, and we're going to increasingly have that ability to do that. But as I said, then you'll want to find somebody who can interpret all of that and give that meaning. And uh, you know, the more complex the analysis, probably the fewer the number of of docs that are able to provide that interpretation, but you know that's improving too. You know, like any field that's advancing, the number of people that are able to understand these complex molecular patterns—that's that's improving. Um, Christy uh, is in New Orleans, and uh, Christy says, uh, "I've heard lots of space shell programs uh, that astronauts are going to have to be genetically modified." Especially for long-duration spaceflight or space settlement, uh, your opinion of genetically modifying people, maybe based on the information you're getting from the research that you're talking about, uh, or from some other source, uh, over and above uh, taking medications that might tailor uh, somebody to a specific treatment. Yeah, so that's an interesting subject, and probably one of the people you may have run into is one of my research partners, Chris Mason, who's also on this paper. But he's he's at Cornell, and he's done some uh, some of his talks around modifying genomes to allow people to better survive in in a, in a harsh spaceflight environment. Um, there's certainly a lot of interest in that area. We're we're quite a long ways, I would say, from being able to make those modifications and understand the risks, right? So you use a CRISPR-type modification uh, or you send in some uh, microRNA with a bacteriophage or something and you make those modifications. Uh, it's probably quite a while yet before we understand the adverse effects of that over time. And, uh, you know, cells are... Cells are always prone to make abnormal or to have abnormal growth cycles and turn into cancerous cells and so forth. So we'll need some time 
to understand if, if those kinds of modifications, you know, produce downstream effects over time that are that are harmful. But it certainly is an area of interest, and uh, and you know, one of the one of the areas that we're looking at right now is uh, what are called uh, hematopoietic cells. Those might be among the more malleable uh, to something like that, right? Because they're not part of the structural component of the body. They're the bone marrow cells that form into blood cells. So they're they're rapidly changing and turning over, and and, and that's certainly a type of tissue that can be affected in a radiation environment. So those may be one of the targets of that kind of uh, modification in the early kinds of research. But uh, I think we're still a good distance off from this, and there will probably have to be quite a lot of animal studies before we, we're doing that in humans. Um, people who have been on the space show and um, seem to know something about what they're talking about, I, I can't guarantee that, uh, but have often made comments like, um, humans are not supposed to be in space. We're not made to be in space. So all of uh, what we're doing to try to adapt people to space goes against the natural grain, so to speak. I'm sure you've, you've heard comments like that before. Um, are we really not made to be in space, despite the fact that we can make some adaptations? What What is your thought on that? Yeah, that's a discussion that, you know, ends up getting kicked around in our space meetings and, you know, sometimes in pubs and things like that. And uh, it's a fair statement, to be honest. I mean, I would respect that opinion that humans weren't made to be in space. Uh, but the question is, on the other side, if we have that ambition and if we have the resources uh, and if there's some purpose for it, uh, why should we not do it? Uh, and and I think they're I think they're both valid, right? They're just two different viewpoints uh, with regard to what is an extreme operation. I, I think that you probably, if you went back to the early explorers crossing the ocean, there were probably a lot of people who said, you know, there's no need to go those vast distances. And remember, at those days, they thought they were going to fall off the earth. Uh, and so it, it was perceived to have a, a tremendous risk above, you know, the ordinary risks they were taking. Uh, so uh, the other question is, though, should we, you know, what's the value to humanity to be space explorers? Uh, could we find something that's benefit a benefit to the human race here? Uh, and then we get into things like mining of helium three, uh, finding of platinum and titanium in rare elements on asteroids and how that could could actually benefit humanity uh, so you know from my own personal view I would say it is a harsh environment uh, I was sitting one day with the, the team on inspiration Mars the medical team and one of them said uh, yeah, it is one of the dan- most dangerous things humans will ever do but we got to do it and so that's kind of a reflection on probably both sides of that sentiment, and uh, I, I tend to fall on on that side. If if people are willing to take the risk, and we have the resources to do that, um, then that's the decision for those individuals to make. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Henry uh, has a question for you. He's in New York, 
and he said, how much of protecting the crew and facilitating and enhancing the benefits of the kind of medicine you're talking about come from the way the spacecraft is engineered? Yeah, so I would say that uh, one of our major problems, and, and it may not have gotten a lot of attention in the public sphere, uh, is going to be the brain on, on these deep space or these uh, long-range missions, long-duration missions. And so, you know, I think I think NASA has rightly set the uh, a particular the radiation exposure limits for a particular area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is the memory center, one of the areas that that we do work on as well. Uh, as they set the radiation limits uh, lower, like a thousand millisieverts. And uh, I think that's that's rightly so. So the brain, the emotional processes, the mental, the cognitive processes are going to be at greater risk on the on the way to Mars, for example. And you know, we certainly have not solved that. And so, where can the spacecraft come in, and how can we add protection as well as these biological countermeasures? So, my general answer would be. We should do both, that we should uh, provide the right kind of protection uh, externally, and then that we should provide the right kind of uh, biological measures internally, you know, to afford the most protection in aggregate. Uh, I will say that, you know, one one thing that's been discussed is to have a, a helmet, for example, that is a shielding of the brain that one might wear during sleep or something where you at least get, you know, partial shielding for that period of time uh, of a vulnerable tissue. Another uh, concept that gets kicked around is the challenge of shielding. In other words, shielding with water is something that's uh, readily discussed, lead shielding and things like that, and those are weight and material-related issues. Um, but one of the things that gets discussed in, in inner circles is that if you have a uh, a particle that doesn't get completely blocked out by shielding, it can gain entrance into the space capsule and it slows down and it may not have enough energy to leave the other side of the space capsule. And so it could bounce around inside and, and, and hit an astronaut more than once as it's slowing down and going through the individual while in the space capsule. Uh, so what's the right amount of shielding to prevent that? You know, what is the mass calculation in order to achieve that? Um, and those are just the, the engineering challenges that um, you know, the space community is constantly working with. Um, so I hope that answers the question. It is a very challenging question. Uh, listeners, there's still time. If you want to get a call in, 866-687-7223. And email Dr. Space at drspace at thespaceshow.com. <clears throat> Roger's in Miami. Uh, and Roger says for space settlement, people talk about having kids and children growing up in the space settlement. Have you ever looked at applying the precision or personal medicine? to infants or children, or is that not possible for some medical reason? Yeah, we, we've, we've absolutely done that. Uh, we've done it in, in a very large scale here on Earth, 
in in uh, some cases, and even in cases like Down syndrome, where you truly have a a genetic disorder, right? You have three copies of the 21st chromosome, and that lends itself to all kinds of downstream effects that that we try to tackle. And so, uh, it absolutely can be applied to children. Um, if you look at the textbook for inborn errors of metabolism. Uh, there's three giant textbooks. Uh, they probably would sit about a foot high on your desk, um, and they're full of those exact things, and they, they're really all focused on children. So any kind of a metabolic error that uh, that you could imagine is, is addressed by precision application. And, and actually, that is really one of the first applications of precision medicine is inborn errors of metabolism. So... From that vantage point, you could say that we've been doing this for decades. Uh, and when you go in to get a infant screening, they'll screen for about, you know, they'll take a heel stick of blood and they'll screen for over 400 different wow. inborn errors of metabolism. And, you know, if one shows up, then you're going to get a very tailored precision medicine approach. Uh, so that answer is yes, absolutely. And uh, But I, I would say, you know, getting our... Back to our question of should humans be in space, I believe, and you know we can't prove it till we try it. But I believe those children, if they survive gestation and, and survive uh, birth, they will have to adapt to that environment, and they will be very different, right? If they're on Mars and they have to adapt to a 0.38 gravity environment, they will develop very differently than a child on earth so um as a personal note that listeners have had heard me mention many many times i have a an adult kid who has cystic fibrosis and probably for the last 15 years almost all of the research is targeted toward the numerous genetic combinations that make up cf and genetic approaches to it not just traditional you know medical treatments and drugs and of course, when they come out, they're gigantically expensive, but they they target the the genetic mix of the person that has the defect. Is that what you're talking about with precision um, and and personal type of medicine? They're targeting the the genes that make him or her have the problem. Well, targeting the genes, uh, I would say targeting the either the expression of the genes or targeting many of the related effects. So you were talking there about associated gene networks, for example. And so all of those gene networks have a metabolic network associated with them. Um, so I'll, I'll take Down syndrome as an example. So that extra chromosome, it's a full extra chromosome, and on that chromosome is uh, a gene for an enzyme called superoxide dismutase. And so they have uh, a lot of free radicals produced because of this really 50% more SOD. So this, this free radical load in, in kids with Down syndrome is tremendous. Well, one of the things we do is we measure metabolites and we look at the all of these downstream effects. And we can't change the fact that they have uh, a third, uh, an extra 21st chromosome 
We can't change the effect, uh, the fact that they have an extra copy of SOD, that gene. But there are metabolic effects that we can try and slow down or quench with antioxidants or address downstream metabolism from that to try and limit that impact because kids with Down syndrome also are more prone to an Alzheimer's-like dementia earlier than most people. And so we, we can target the effects of those genes that spread across the molecular networks. And so in these kind of gene environments where uh, they're more dominant, like cystic fibrosis, uh-huh. yeah, we can't change those, but we try to change some of the related effects. And as you would know very well, Tremendous advances have been made in cystic fibrosis uh, over just the past decade. Uh, you know, since the genotype was identified, the related genes, and some additional therapeutics, and and in many ways, uh, most of the gene variants that we see don't have as strong effect as the CF gene, uh, but they do have an effect, and they they have an additive effect with other genes. And so that's that's part of the precision medicine application is to understand those better, understand what risks they pose, and try and measure the metabolites. So those are downstream from the genes, so that that's where we can act, and that's where we can add benefit. What what about gene splicing, or is that gene modification? If you added in something that would combat anti-gravity or, I mean, microgravity, or you took out something that uh, was going to give you heart trouble in microgravity if, if, you know, you took out a gene, if you could do that uh, by gene splicing or gene editing. Is that the same as modification? Well, um, that's a specific kind of modification. So it would be one kind of modification. You know, another one could be RNA interference, right, where you're, so for example, the myostatin gene uh, is what stops our muscle growth, right? Statin means to stop, and so the myostatin gene can can impair our muscle growth. And so one could say, well, I'm going to use an RNA, RNA interference molecule to inhibit the myostatin gene, so it permits muscle growth in space. That would be a little different than a gene splicing, right? A gene splicing would say, I'm going to tell the gene to make a new protein or a modified protein versus I'm going to tell the gene to wake up or to silence. Does that make sense? Uh Uh-huh. So they're just different forms of gene modification. The challenge with, with gene splicing is always getting it to the target tissues that you you want and uh, and only to those tissues that you want. Um, we're coming up on uh, on 90 minutes. What um, should we have talked about based upon your on your paper or that you would have liked to talk about that we haven't gotten to or forgotten or omitted or we're too ignorant to know? <laughs> no. Well, uh, I I think the one the one thought maybe that I'd like to leave everybody with is that uh, I believe we have enough data now to apply this in all walks of life and and certainly in spaceflight. 
And so the question is, you know, how much do we know today? How, many, how much can we apply immediately? Uh, how much do we need more research on in the near term? And then what, what is really the dark alley? Where do we just have to dig a lot deeper for a lot longer? Um, so I would say that we have enough information right now to act on many fronts and to implement precision medicine right away or personalized medicine right away. And so you know, anybody in this audience can seek that out in a clinical setting for themselves today, uh, personally, uh, in the space flight environment. That's going to take uh, just some more, I think, administrative and institutional advancing to where everyone becomes comfortable with it. Um, but we have the way to make those modifications in a program pre-mission, in-mission, and then post-mission. And I would say if spaceflight physicians are less comfortable in-mission, then we certainly can apply it pre-mission and post-mission. And so the positive thing there is we can immediately uh, apply precision medicine. I'm, I'm going to make the bold statement kind of in conclusion is that I would argue if you're going to send, you know, four people to the moon for six months or three, six people to Mars for 500 days or, or longer, why would we not use precision medicine? I would, I would turn that question around and say, given what we already know about how to tailor things to an individual and really optimize them physiologic, physiologically for going into a harsh environment, why would we not absolutely engage in the precision medicine immediately and then acknowledge where we still have some things to learn, set a boundary there, but immediately engage in our precision medicine applications? Do you have a newsletter or put out regular information for people who are interested and want to follow? We don't have a newsletter. Uh, we're pretty heavily engaged in research and in clinical uh, clinical care, clinical paradigms, and a lot of extreme environments. Um, we do updates from time to time. Our, our website is SavarisAerospace.com, and uh, I'm assuming you can put that in your notes, David. I will, yeah. Uh, so if anyone wants to jump in and, and see the kinds of things that we're up to and um, – that's one place to do that. Well, um, when's your next paper due? When when should we look forward to hearing from you with other changes and advances? Um, so we uploaded a, a, a prelim version of it to BioRx4 uh, uh, just recently, and we'll probably have the final paper within the next couple of months, which actually is going to be more extensive. But... Um, that's going to be a really interesting discussion about something quite novel we found during the uh, the one year in space NASA twin study, and uh, that that lends itself to another set of, of uh, mission countermeasures that we think are going to be really important for space, but in a very particular area related to this very particular finding. But I would call it um, a quite novel finding in the NASA twin study. So we're expecting to have that out. Uh, fully the next few months and then and then be able to freely talk about that. So it, it's even the earlier version is not available to the general public yet then? Uh, the early version is available uh, on BioRx4, 
Roman numeral four. So it's BioRx IV. IV, yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's on Paracresol. So if you search Paracresol, uh, P-C-R-E-S-O-L. All these funny names. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be good at spelling. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll look forward to talking to you when the when the full version is out. Keep, please uh, let me know, and, and uh, we'll definitely get you back on the air. Absolutely. Yeah, I look uh, forward to it, David. Well, we thank you very much um, and uh, appreciate it. Now, get you the archived information when we have it done. And listeners, again, uh, thanks for your emails and Marshall for your call. And uh, Dallas Benoff on Cislunar Space is back with us Tuesday evening. 7 p.m. California time. Stay safe, everyone. Have a great um, rest of the weekend and a good week coming up. And as always, keep looking up. Thank you and goodbye from the space show.